following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. Today we have a kind of an odd topic. The sermon is focusing on an execution. And uh, we don't usually think of executions as church material, Sunday school material. But this execution is different in many ways that would not have been obvious to the people who were there at the time. Tim's section last week and my section this week really go together. And so I'll be reading them as a piece in a little bit. But before I do that, I want to show you a couple of pictures I got these from the ESV Study Bible, just to give you kind of a a mental image for where these events would have taken place. Um, At the top of your screen, the next picture zooms in a little bit. So at the top of your screen, you see the temple. This would have been the the Jewish temple that Herod built for them. And this is the, the, uh, the view of the city as it would have been laid out at the time of Christ. Uh, just outside the second city wall is the place of the execution. This is a stone quarry from which they would have quarried many of the stones for building the Temple Mount. And as you come out of the Temple Mount, there would have been a bridge. And it would have been a main thoroughfare. So people are coming. I suppose you're looking at the picture um, on your screen I can't point to anything, but if you look there, right in the center, there's three openings that come off of the Temple Mount and come across a bridge, and that bridge would carry you down across the valley and into the rest of the city. So this would have been the main thoroughfare at the time, and there would have been hundreds and hundreds of people walking back and forth on this pathway. So then just outside the second wall would have been this stone quarry, and this would have been the place where the Romans chose to perform their crucifixions. This would have been uh, very visible for people walking in and out of the city. They would have been able to see the victims of the crucifixion there. That little uprising there would have been a, a part of the stone that was of poor quality. It was left behind by the quarriers because it was not useful um, for building, but it was uh, left there as a, a prominence, a small prominence where the crosses could be set up. And this is also the place, I don't know if you can see it on your screens, but this is also the place very close by where they would have been uh, digging uh, tombs in the remaining stone of the quarry. And this is where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb um, would have been located. And this is obviously not a picture of the actual tomb. The actual tomb was destroyed um, by the Muslims uh, I think uh, around 1000 A.D. Um, but the, the location is known, and the, to- the tomb would have been set up something like this, where you have a small opening. You would step through the opening and down into a pit, as it were, that would allow you to work on, and place the body on the table there, where you see the cloth um, laid out. And the, then the, the stone would be rolled back, and the body would be left there to decompose. And this would have been a typical tomb at the time. It would have been the kind of tomb that that Jesus Christ was laid in. And then the next picture, it's a very rare uh, photo, or not a rare photo, but a photo of a very rare find archaeologically. Most victims of crucifixion were not buried. 
they were left on the cross to rot. Their body was taken off the cross and thrown to the side. There's very little respect paid to victims of crucifixion. Um, so it's very rare to find someone um, buried who had been crucified, and still more rare for someone to write on the tombstone, this person was executed. Um, this, that's not the kind of thing you want to put on someone's tombstone. Um, but this particular ankle bone was discovered in a, uh, a bone box. After the body decomposes, they, grab the, they gather the bones together and put them in an ossuary, a bone box. And this ankle bone was found in a bone box with a nail through the heel. Now, there would have been a number of different ways that people would have been crucified um, depending on who the executioner was and what his preferred style was. We know that Jesus Christ was crucified using nails. Um, this particular victim um, would have been uh, nailed to the cross with his feet sideways. So they put a twist in the body and drive the nail through the side of the ankle bone into the cross. The reason that this nail is found still embedded in the the um, ankle bone is probably, you see the end of the nail there has been bent over. It's likely that when they were driving the nail into the cross, the nail hit a knot in the wood and it caused the nail to bend over, which would have made it very difficult for the, um, after the victim had died, to remove the body because this, this nail would have been anchored in the cross. So it's likely they had to rip the the nail out of the wood, and then they just left it in the victim because it's too difficult to remove it. I, I show you this picture not because it's a happy picture, but to let you know that crucifixion is a part of history. It's a historical fact that this is how the Romans executed. They're not the ones who invented it. But um, Jesus died in a way that is historically known and verified at a particular point in time when they were using this kind of execution. I would like to read the passage now with those images in your mind. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, wait, let's, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was split in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. As Tim noted last week, this section seems too brief for the crucifixion. The cross is the cross of history. It is the the crux, the the focus of history. Everything beforehand looked forward to the cross and, and everything to come is looking back at the cross. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5 says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that even as God is creating the world, it has already been determined by God that he will take on human flesh and be crucified for our sins. Even as Jesus Christ, as the Creator, is fashioning Adam out of the dirt, He is fashioning His image that He will take on in human flesh. Galatians or Genesis 3.15, when God gives a promise of hope to Adam and Eve is looking forward to this event. The sacrificial lamb of the Passover, which has been offered for hundreds and hundreds of years through Jewish history, which is being offered at the very moment that Christ is on the cross, is also a symbol looking forward to this event. John the Baptist acknowledges this when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even the high priest in their own backwards way affirm this when they say, oh, we don't want to execute him during the feast lest there be a riot. And yet, Judas betrayed Jesus during the feast and they crucified him during the feast. 1 Corinthians 1.18 To the world that is perishing, the word of the cross is foolish. What kind of a religious organization adopts as their leader or claims as their leader someone who was 
executed in the electric chair, or hanged on the gallows. Our leader was executed in the electric chair. Nobody but Christians claim that kind of a leader. The word of the cross is foolish to those that are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. When you look at someone hanging on the cross, do you see power? Someone who has been immobilized and pinned to a piece of wood like a a lab specimen. Does that look powerful to you? We know what God was accomplishing there. Galatians 6.14 By it I have been crucified to the world. What I loved What I pursued, what I thought was reality, that has been crucified to me now. Ephesians 2, 12-16, By the cross we are reconciled to God. Every one of these passages could be an entire sermon. Colossians 2, 13-15, Reconciliation and forgiveness with God come from the cross. Our debt is nailed to the cross, paid in full, and by it demons have been defeated. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's from noon until 3 p.m. The brightest part of the day was the darkest night. It's not a solar eclipse. It's an impossibility to be a solar eclipse because the feast of Passover always happens at a full moon. You only have an eclipse on the new moon. And the maximum theoretical length for an an eclipse is only seven and a half minutes, not three hours. This is clearly an act of God. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. You think of the ninth plague of Egypt, when they were not even able to see their hand before their face. And the promise in Amos 5.20, calling the day of the Lord a day of darkness. This is likely although we don't know for sure from the text, but this is likely when Jesus suffered hell on the cross. This is when the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus Christ. And Matthew cast out into outer darkness is the way that Jesus referred to hell. We cannot imagine the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. It cannot be depicted on a screen, and Matthew did not even attempt to write it in his gospel. But it is depicted by three hours of divine darkness. Darkness brought by God the Father. This was an internal, an inside, spiritual, if you will, anguish of Jesus Christ, who has never been alienated before now. And now he is completely alienated. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. We really have no way of comprehending what it is like to be without sin. To have never sinned. For us, sin is with us, everywhere we go, in our hearts and in everyone we interact with. But for Jesus Christ, it was completely and absolutely and utterly foreign. 
I do an exercise with my students when I'm teaching this sometimes, and I, at the beginning of the two-week seminar, I give them all uh, a piece of paper, just a piece of blank A4 paper, not this one, this is written on, but a, a piece of white paper, and I, I bring it with me, I, I make sure that none of the corners are bent, it's flawless, and I, I pass them out to every one of the students, and I say, now, your assignment is to keep this piece of paper absolutely flawless and perfect. And there's going to be a competition so that at the end of the two weeks, whosever piece of paper is the most perfect, you get a prize. And so every day they come into class and I inspect their papers. And I make sure that none of the corners are bent. And if I have somebody who has a bent corner, I, I make sure I point that out. No smudges. They have, you know, the smart ones put it inside to come to a folder to keep it protected. And we come to this part in the class where we're trying to help people understand what this means. We take these papers out and we put them in the dirt. This was a, a supernatural alienation. This is an alienation that is beyond a mere human's ability to bear. This is the, the significance in part of the divine nature of Christ. And the Spirit of God who is sustaining him on the cross to be able to bear this alienation. And as Jesus is bearing the wrath of God, as he is being made to be sin who knew no sin for three hours, and then it begins to grow light again. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama! Jesus says this in a loud voice for all to hear. It's a passionate cry. This word cried occurs only here in the New Testament. The theological question is, did the Father forsake the Son? Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It must have felt like it, just as it did to David, who wrote the 22nd Psalm. Matthew alludes to this psalm many times throughout this passage. It's interesting, he omits the that it might be fulfilled. I think, as a good writer, he omits that, that phrase here, not because it's not a fulfillment of prophecy, but because he doesn't want to interrupt the flow of what's happening in this passage. Jesus is here, the suffering righteous servant, the one who suffers unjustly. He feels abandoned by God. This is the only time that Jesus refers to his father as my God instead of father in the book of Matthew. And he is here quoting the psalm. We ask, is there some kind of break in the Trinity? These are hard questions and the scriptures do not, of course, address these directly. But we do have passages that assure us that there was no division in the person of God. God would cease to be God if this happened. But there was an alienation between the God-man Jesus Christ and the Father, something Jesus Christ had never before endured. But we know that the Father was still with the Son because he sustained his life. 
And in John 10:17 it affirms that the Father loves the Son because the Son lays down his life. And Hebrews 5:7-8 reads, "In the days of his flesh prayers and supplications, cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence." And yet Jesus did die. But he went to be with the Father. And Jesus was still referring to my God. He is still claiming that this is my God. I do not understand. I, I feel alienated, but I have not been turned away. It is possible to feel abandoned, to cry out, Why have you forsaken me? without it actually being the case. Had God really forsaken David when David wrote the 22nd Psalm? No. Here Jesus is expressing anguish. He's not expressing a theological break in the triune God. In John 16.32 Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. This is where we are. His disciples have forsaken him. Jesus is there as alone as you could possibly be. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. As he cries out, Ela, Ela, Elama Sabachthani, some of the bystanders hearing it say, Ha, huh, this man is calling Elijah. Elijah in the rabbinic tradition, because he did not die but was taken away in chariots of fire, is a, a popular image for someone coming to rescue you, to rescue the saint in the midst of his troubles. So it's not at all surprising that they thought he was calling out for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink trying to provide some kindness to someone who is obviously suffering tremendously. But the others said, Wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And I, I see here almost a, a kind of a, an apprehension. Because here they have taken a man who has brought the dead back to life who touches lepers and they become pure, who makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. And yet, somehow, they have managed to pin that man to the cross. And maybe they're just kind of amazed that they've actually been able to pull this off. That there's still this, this sense that, that somewhere... Somebody's going to come and rescue him. Maybe it's Elijah. See here, he's calling for Elijah. Even in his agony, they're still mocking him. Perhaps even expecting some dramatic miracle. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Here the word cried is the same word which appears three times in Psalm 22. In the Septuagint, this is a, a cry of, of uh, dereliction, of agony, a feeling of abandonment. But we know from other 
gospel accounts that he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He yields up his spirit around the sixth hour, which Josephus tells us was the time of the evening sacrifice. Here is the Lamb of God in sight of the temple, dying at the same time as the Lamb in the temple. The picture and the reality But we see that Jesus is in complete control, even to the very end. No one killed Jesus. As he promised in John 10, 17 to 18, no one takes my life. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. Jesus is life itself. You cannot kill him. What was the spirit then that he yielded up? It is his human spirit. The body was buried, and his human spirit went to be with the Father. God, the Son, did not die, but certainly Jesus Christ, the God-man, did. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. All three of the synoptics mention this point. Hebrews 9 to 10 mentions it and elaborates That what Jesus did on the cross has ended the need for sacrifices in the temple. This is a divine act. God removed the barrier symbolically between the holy of holies and humans. Jesus has made the way clear for us. And we now come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Because we have a high priest who will never die. And the earth shook. And the rocks were torn. Just as the temple curtain was torn in two, the rocks themselves were torn apart. Earthquakes are very common in Israel. It sits right on a fault line. The Richter, or the, the, the seismic instruments measure 500 earthquakes a year in Israel. Many of them not sensible, but many are. Very common to have earthquakes, but earthquakes that tear rocks in two are significant. This is a clear sign of God's judgment, of wrath. Earthquake is always a reminder that we are not in control, that God is in control. So he gives this sign. And Matthew, in in giving a series of these dramatic Divine events, the curtain are torn, the rocks are torn, there's darkness, there's earthquake. He adds one more. That at the time of the resurrection, many people, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Jesus, after his resurrection, he goes to Galilee. He leaves the political center. But he does not leave Jerusalem without witnesses. At his resurrection, many came back to life and went into the city as witnesses to his resurrection. This reminds us a little bit of 2 Kings 13 when they had buried Elisha and sometime later they were about to bury someone else and there was a marauding band of raiders that came into Israel and the people who were burying the guy Figured, you know, this guy's already dead, but we're still alive. So they ran, but they just threw the body into the tomb before they took off. And that body landed on Elisha's bones and came back to life. 
And here, when Jesus Christ comes back to life, many leave their graves and come into the city to testify that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, you have to see this in the context in which Matthew places it, because at the very beginning of this story, Matthew is showing the high priests and, and those who are around the cross mocking Jesus and saying, you said you could destroy the temple and, and raise it up in three days. Why can't you save yourself? You've saved others. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, then ask God to deliver you. Mocking Him. Tempting Him. These are the exact same words that Jesus heard from the lips of Satan in Matthew chapter 3. If you are the Son of God, make these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from the temple and the angels will bear you up. And here he is at the end of his life once again. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Was he the Son of God? Absolutely. And that's not how he's going to demonstrate that. There's another way, the way of the Father, the way that has been determined from before the foundations of the world. And here Matthew takes this confession of faith, truly this was the Son of God, and places it on the lips of a Roman centurion, his executioner. Jesus' disciples, when they saw Jesus still the waves were filled with awe. And they say, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter, and he's making his profession of faith to Christ, he says, you are the Son of God. And yet for Peter, that profession did not include the cross because later when Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem to be crucified, Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. That's the wrong way, Jesus. Don't be talking about that. And Jesus says to Satan, or to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you desire not the things of God. Peter wanted Jesus to be the Son of God, but without the cross. And here, a Gentile looks up on the cross and says, this is the Son of God. Matthew was concerned that his Jewish readers include the Gentiles in the body of Christ. And so at the very beginning of Matthew, Jesus once again encounters a centurion who says, I'm not worthy to come into your house. Just say the word and it will happen. And Jesus says, truly in all of Israel I have not found faith such as this. Jesus never used the title Son of God himself. He preferred the title Son of Man. But he never corrected anyone who called him the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that these women were here even at a distance is remarkable. Certainly this was no place for a woman. And yet 
These were from Galilee, several days' journey from Jerusalem. They had likely come with Jesus for the festival, but the women stayed by his side for the crucifixion. Where are the disciples? Where are the men? We know of only John, who was present at the cross. All the rest had abandoned Jesus and were in hiding as their master died. No doubt the centurion and the others were there in part to keep his disciples from a potential rescue attempt, but they had no fear of that. But the women were there, watching, wondering, weeping. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Unlike John's disciples who went to get John's body when Herod beheaded him, Jesus' twelve disciples were nowhere to be found. Instead, a disciple of Jesus who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, but who had not consented to their plot, approached Pilate. As a rich man, he had access to Pilate, but as a rich man and a member of the Sanhedrin, he also was risking his reputation to claim the body of a condemned criminal traitor and failed Messiah. There were other rich people in Jesus' life. Mary, Martha, Lazarus were were likely wealthy based on where they lived. Matthew, tax collector, Zacchaeus, another tax collector, who aided Jesus in his ministry. Jesus affirmed, much to his disciples' shock, that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. But, with God, all things are possible. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. According to Deuteronomy 21.23, a hanged person was not to remain hanging overnight. By extension, this applied to crucified victims, and Joseph was honoring this. He also showed honor by wrapping the body in clean linen. It's a sign of a just person. And laying it in his own unused tomb just outside the capital city walls. This would have been a prime location. In fact, it's still prime location to be buried in Jerusalem. And here, Joseph gives up his tomb just outside the city walls for Jesus. This is tremendous respect for anyone, much less someone who had been shamefully crucified. And Joseph buried Jesus' body and rolled the stone in place, keeping out wild animals, grave robbers, and then went away to keep the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. This is a tremendously poignant picture of mourning, of hoping, of of wondering, of asking, God, 
What have you done? We do not know what was going through their minds. Perhaps it was something like Abraham, who believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. Perhaps they were just in a daze. But here they serve as the witness to Jesus' burial place. And they are the ones who will return to the same place after the Sabbath. These women were the last to leave and the first to return to the grave. Where are you in this story? In this story, where do you see yourself? Are you mourning? Or are you mocking? Do you believe that God has let you down? Why have you forsaken me? Is that your cry? How do you respond? Do you write God off? Do you still pray? Do you still say, my God, my God? Do you wait and hope for the resurrection or have you written that off? Are you mocking God? Has he not fulfilled your expectations of deliverance? Have you written off his promises? Have you lost all hope? Some of you may be crying out with Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 resonates with you. You have not lost faith. You still call God your God, but you feel abandoned. Can you still claim one of the last verses of Psalm 22, verse 24? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Have you run away with his disciples who could not stand the rejection or shame or risk the consequences of standing with Jesus? Except for Judas, they were all restored. Judas refused to repent. But you can come back. You can repent and come back. Even if you have abandoned Jesus, even if you have denied that you know him, you can be restored. Perhaps you're the rich man who has chosen to abandon your reputation to be identified with Jesus. Perhaps you are offering lavish worship to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are the hardened Gentile centurion who against all expectations was shocked out of his callousness to death to be filled with awe and fear and confessed that this was truly the Son of God. Perhaps you're with the women, faithful followers to the very end, but not sure what this could mean. Does it all seem dark, over, hopeless? Do you still have faith? Do you still believe the promises of God? Will you come back to the tomb, still to serve the Master's body, when all seems over? Hebrews 12, 1-3 Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this record of the crucifixion. There's no gloss here. There's no softening of the lines. It is harsh. It is painful to read. And we thank you for this, this reminder of one who endured, who was then lifted up and glorified and honored by you, the Father. And we pray that we too would endure and trust in you and your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.